welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the past several weeks. It's a series uh, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet uh, sent by God to speak his word to the people of Judah. You remember uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Isaiah chapter 6, which is really the start of Isaiah's story. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets this incredible vision of the glory of God. He experiences God's forgiveness. And then he's sent to his people with this message that God tells him in advance, this is going to be a hard road. You're going to speak the message, you're going to speak the truth, but people's hearts are hard and their ears are deaf and they're not going to understand. And now in Isaiah chapter 7, we see the beginning of this work. We see the beginning of his bringing uh, this message to a people who are slow to understand. And so uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 7. Verses 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let's conquer it for ourselves and set up Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin, And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come to pass since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. heard a story the other day that was amazing and fascinating to me. Two years ago, a woman named Sarah Hebert from Louisiana, she was Cajun, you can get the Hebert, received a letter from another woman who happened to also be named Sarah Hebert, who grew up in the same little Louisiana town as her. And in this handwritten letter on torn out notebook paper, the one Sarah Bear wrote to the other Sarah Bear how much she missed her, how they had been best friends when they were growing up, how they had done everything together. She shared these vivid, uh, vivid stories about doing puppet shows together, getting in trouble for rollerblading in their parents' house. She told these incredible stories of being together, but she said, someday, you know, I don't know what happened, but one day you were just gone. And I never heard it from you, and I'd love to reconnect with you. Sincerely, the other Sarah Bear. Well, Sarah, one, got this letter, and she couldn't believe it because she had no memory of this other Sarah. No memory of her being in her life, no memory of there being another Sarah, no memory of even having another best friend during these formative years of her life. And so she went on a podcast, the podcast Heavyweights, to see if they could uh, help her find who this woman was and what was going on. Was it a scam? Was she after her money? What was the big deal? What was happening? And the subject, Sarah, the, the first one, said that the problem was that there was not much about this period of her life that she remembered. You see, she had had a very traumatic childhood, a childhood marked by abuse and neglect, a childhood that saw her parents separate that saw her live a lot of life in the bar that her dad ran with her stepmom. And she had blocked out huge chunks of her childhood. So not only did she not remember Sarah, she didn't remember much at all because she didn't want to remember. And when the two Sarahs finally on the podcast meet one another and they talk to one another, she becomes convinced that it's not a hoax, that it's not a scam, but that this Sarah was her best friend. And that in some of the darkest memories of her life, memories where she felt all alone, memories where she cried herself to sleep, memories where she got violently ill, memories uh, where she felt abandoned by her family, this other Sarah was there all along. A psychologist that they interview says memory is a funny thing. You know, especially when we're exposed to trauma, we can dissociate, we can lose track of parts of ourselves, parts of our memory. When we want to, we can forget and wall off whole parts of our experience. But this quote from Sarah, I thought I was alone, but she was there caring for me. These worst parts of my life, when I thought I was alone, I was never really alone because I had a friend. 
You know, the great invitation of this passage that we just read, between all of the weird names, and we're going to get to all that, and the countries, and what's going on, the invitation of this passage is to recognize that you and I are never truly alone. That in the darkest moments of your life, the hardest things you've ever been through, the things you've done that you wish nobody knew about, the things you're most afraid of in your future, that you've never been alone and you need never face it alone. Because the promise of this passage is all in that little word, Emmanuel. A woman will have a child and she'll name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. But if you are a human being, you exist in the world as a human, as a part of the race that God has joined himself to in Jesus, that God has come near to us so that we never have to be alone. If you've trusted in Christ, in faith, then he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Not when you try to forsake him, not when you go through the toughest parts of your life, not when you face an uncertain future. But Emmanuel, God is with us. That he's near to us and he clings to us. And you need to never be alone. Now this feels too good to be true, doesn't it? The idea that the God of the universe wants to be God with us, that the God who made everything wants to be with you and with me in an unshakable, unlosable way. And we do constantly struggle to believe it. We struggle to believe that God is truly with us, that we're not ultimately left in this world to fend for ourselves and to figure it out for ourselves to make our own way through life and to figure out our own way towards salvation. But to believe that God really and truly is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we're tempted to act and to live as though ultimately we're on our own. And this happens mostly when we struggle, when we suffer, when we're fearful. We're tempted to believe that we've got to chart our own way through it, to figure out our own way to survive it, to figure out our own salvation. And the message of Isaiah is that God is with us. And that when we know that he's with us, when we have an experience of his grace and his glory and his beauty and his goodness, that it can transform our lives so that we can know in the midst of an uncertain world, that we have the certainty of God's presence with us. Isaiah got this in the last passage, in in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, Isaiah had an experience of God that was so transformative. He saw God above the temple. He saw God and his angelic hosts there praising his holiness. He fell at his feet, confessing his sin. He was forgiven. He had this experience of God that was so transformative for him that all he could say from that point on was, God, here I am, send me, right? My life belongs to you. You're with me. I know it. And so I will go and I will be and I will do whatever you send me to do. He had this wholehearted faith, knowing that God was wholly with him. But here Isaiah meets a very, very half-hearted man. If Isaiah had this wholehearted confidence in in Emmanuel, God with us, in Ahaz, he meets almost his polar opposite. 
he meets a man who is half-hearted and divided. A man who's received incredible promises for God. He, from God, he was the, the king of Judah. He was in the line of David. He was one of those people who had received a promise that someone in his family would be seated on the throne forever. This is somebody who had received extraordinary things from God. And yet, when we meet Ahaz, he is anxious and scared and panicking and about to do something for himself and his people that will be disastrous. Verse 2 tells us, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That is a vivid metaphor. Right? We didn't get much of a hurricane, but you might have had the opportunity, you might have had that experience of sitting in your house while the winds or your apartment or wherever you were, while the winds ticked up, right? As it went to 20, 30 mile an hour gusts, and you heard the wind move the trees and it shaked the leaves. Well, we're told that Ahaz, the king, the man who had these promises and assurances, was shaking like a leaf on a tree. And when the king shakes like a leaf, all of the people around him were shaking like a leaf. Anxiety was in the air and in the water and everywhere as these people lived in fear. Now, what was the crisis that was going on? We're going to try to navigate this pile of names that, that you came to here. Here's the crisis that he's facing. Remember about 200 years ago, 200 years before this story, Israel split into two nations, right? The northern tribes became the nation of Israel while Judah stayed in the southern half and they remained faithful to most of what God had given and commanded them. And it came and went, but for the most part, they still worshiped God in the temple. They lived in Jerusalem. They had the Davidic king, the king of David seated on the throne and they were trusting in his promises to ultimately bring the Messiah, the king who would rule all things through David's line. So the nation had split, all right? And now what's called Ephraim here uh, in this story is the northern kingdom of Israel. And what's going on geopolitically during this time, during Ahaz's time, is that the Assyrian empire was building power to the east and they were starting to move towards Palestine. None of the Palestinian nations had the power in and of themselves to stand up to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the biggest and baddest and strongest of the militaries. And as they were coming forward, as they were moving east, all of the other Palestinian nations started to freak out. And so two of those nations, Syria and Israel, bounded together to make an alliance, and then they threatened Judah saying, if you don't join our alliance, we're going to take over, right? So look, you've got to choose either between the Assyrians on the one hand or this, this alliance between Syria and the Israelites on the other hand. And in this passage, what they've told Ahaz is if you don't join us, we're going to come against you, we're going to take you over, and we're going to put a puppet king in your place, this man, Tabil, who's mentioned in verse 7. So Ahaz finds himself stuck between two larger powers trying to figure out which one of these things am I going to try to cling to, right? Which side am I going to bet on? Am I going to bet on the Assyrian side that they'll be better to us and I'll try to make an alliance with them? 
Or do I make an alliance with the, Syria, the, uh, the Syrians and the Israelites and hope that they will treat us better? And so Ahaz found himself and he found his people where Israel often did. As a small people, a small person stuck between these larger powers, right? Where the problems of the world, the problems of these other nations seem so much bigger and so much scarier than anything that he could do, than any resources that he had in and of himself. And so he begins to shake as this moment of decision comes. Should he make this alliance or run to Assyria? He felt so small and so vulnerable and so powerless in the midst of this situation. Have you ever had that feeling of just feeling so small and out of control compared to the forces that we're up against, compared to the forces that you find yourself afflicted by? Right? Sometimes we even feel too small to deal with the forces that come up within us, right? We feel small compared to the forces of our own addiction. We feel small compared to the forces of our own struggles, our own relationships, our own sins. And then you throw on top of that the way that the world can make us feel so very powerless and so small. You can feel like Ahaz felt that, you know what, my only option for survival, the only way to get through this with the world so big and scary and more than myself is to make an alliance with something that's big enough to help me deal with it. Right? That when dealing with these powers, I've got to try to figure my own way out and to make a friend, to make an alliance with some force or person or power that'll help me stand up to it. So in our panic, in our feeling of smallness, we say, you know what, maybe if I can make an alliance with wealth, right? If I can get enough, if I can accrue enough, if my bank account can be big and stable enough, then I can stand up against the chaos of the economy and politics and all that's going on out in the world, and I can rest in my wealth. Or maybe it's the forces of violence. If I'm strong enough and well-armed enough and defended enough, then I can protect myself against a chaotic world. Or maybe it's the forces of, of politics. I think we do this all the time. If I, I feel so small, so if I can align myself with this party or that party or this ideology or that ideology or this social movement or that social movement, I can feel a little more secure, a little more joined up with others. I can attach my security to something. I can make an alliance that will help me weather the storms of this world. And Isaiah comes to Ahaz in his moment of panic when he's scrambling for an alliance, something to hold on to, and Isaiah says to Ahaz, don't you do it. Don't do it. You don't have to panic. In the midst of all that overwhelms you, in the midst of all that confuses you in this life, you don't have to fear. You don't have to panic. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to find a strong rescuer that you can cling to. Don't let your panic paint you into this corner where you feel like all you have are bad options. Verse 4, God says to Isaiah, Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. That phrase, be careful and be quiet, 
Literally, it can be translated, be careful to do nothing. Right? This is great advice. Right? Uh, the, sometimes the best you can do is nothing. Right? He says, be careful that you don't do the wrong thing. Be careful that in your panic, you just don't reach out for what seems like the sturdiest branch to hold on to. Be careful not to do anything. Be still and know that God is Lord. Be still and trust in Him. Don't look for another rescuer when you have a God who's promised to be your rescuer. Another Savior when you have a God who's promised to be your Savior. If Ahaz is going to lead his people, he's going to need to be able to trust in God. If he's going to be able to lead as a calm, non-anxious leader in the midst of a people shaking like a leaf, he's going to need to know the powerful presence of God there with him. God who alone is calm and unanxious in the midst of the powers of this world. And so he gives this promise starting in verse 7, and he talks about, basically it's a, a promise that ultimately, yes, Syria and Israel are going to fall to Assyria. But as the story plays out, he's going to say, look, but don't worry, Assyria is also going to fall. Because after Assyria is going to come Babylon, and after Babylon is going to come Persia, and after Persia is going to come Greece, and after Greece is going to come Rome, and after Rome is going to come somebody else. Right? One of the incredible insights of Scripture is that the empires of this world are utterly non-interesting and interchangeable. Right? If you read the book of Revelation, over and over again, there's this character that comes in called Babylon. Right? And Babylon uh, is basically a stand-in for Rome in, uh, in Revelation. And it's the author's way of saying, look, I don't care what they call themselves. I don't care if they call themselves Assyria or Babylon or Persia or uh, Greece or Rome or Russia or the U.S. or uh, the British Empire or the Spanish Empire. I don't care what name human hubris and arrogance puts on itself. Ultimately, they come and they go, but God holds history in his hands. Ultimately, the thing that you fear so much in the here and now is here today and it's gone tomorrow. Those alliances that you cling to saying, this will never forsake me. God says, give it five minutes from my perspective. Because these things, they come and they go. But God holds all things in his hands. The pages of history turn but it's God who turns the pages. Be patient. Don't panic. And trust in his promises. And Isaiah says, now look, to comfort you, God will give you a sign. Ask any sign that you want of of God, and he will prove himself to you. And Ahaz says, very spiritually sounding, I will not ask I will not put the Lord God to the test. Now, that sounds pretty good. If that sounds pr pretty good to you, that's because Jesus said that, uh, right, at the temptation in the wilderness. But what Isaiah knows is that this sounds pious, but it's not truly coming from a good place. 
He, Ahaz is refusing to recognize the spiritual nature of his problem. He sounds spiritual. No, no, no. I don't want to test the Lord God. But what Isaiah knows is he's not taking this quite seriously enough. He's not taking God at his word. God, in this instance, actually wants Ahaz to test him, to trust him, to see if he'll come through. And so Isaiah says, look, you may not want a sign, but God's going to give you one anyway. I love this line. Hear then, O house of David, that's Ahaz. Is it too little for you to weary man that you have to weary my God also? Man, it's not enough that you're wearing me out. You got to wear out God with your lack of faith, with your unbelief. And so he says, the Lord himself is going to decide what sign to give you. Behold, verse 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So here's the sign. God is going to take this woman. She's left anonymous to us. We're told she's a virgin here. It's the word used for an unmarried young woman. And she is going to have a child. She's going to name the child Emmanuel. Right now, this famously gets picked up by Matthew in Matthew chapter 1. As he says, this is uh, after the angelic announcement to Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus. He says, this was to fulfill the virgin shall be with child and call his name Emmanuel. But if we're going to understand what Isaiah is doing here, it's a good chance for us to talk about how prophecy really works in the Bible. Sometimes we come to prophecy and we think, well, Isaiah said this thing hundreds of years before that meant nothing back when he said it, and then it flies up in the air, and then it lands hundreds of years later when Matthew picks it up and says, aha, this was about Mary and Jesus. But that's not really the way that prophecy works, right? The prophets were preachers. They were saying something on God's behalf to real listeners, right? You wouldn't, be a, you wouldn't think I was a very good preacher if I got up here and said, hey, take notes because I've got something to say to your children's 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 children. You'd say, well, listen, we've got the Assyrians and the Syrians breathing down our necks. What about us? Well, this is a message for Ahaz and for his people, right? The prophecies of the Old Testament, are, you can think of them like a, a, a rock thrown in a pond. They land where they're dropped, and then their ripples go out from where they are so that they do have ongoing significance, ongoing ramifications into the future, but they mean something when they're given. And so literally the sign that God is giving to Ahaz is this. There's a young woman who's not yet married. She's a virgin. She's going to get married, have a child, and then by the time that child reaches maturity, that's what it's talking about, about when he's old enough to choose the good and reject the evil. When he reaches kind of a level of maturity, by the time that child, Emmanuel, does that, God is going to judge the Syrians and the Israelites with defeat. Right? So this isn't, the, it doesn't mean that this virgin in Isaiah's day is going to get, it's not a second virgin birth. Right? It's that by the time she gets married and has a baby the way that all humans do, and that baby reaches maturity, one, things are going to be bad. 
Because we're told he's going to eat curds and honey. That's the food of a suffering and poor people. So by the time he reaches maturity, things are going to be hard, and he's going to be joining into the poverty of his people, eating this, uh, this difficult meal. And God is going to bring the Assyrian army down. This is what's going to happen. So roughly within the next 15 years, God is going to bring judgment through the Assyrians. I want to pause for just a moment and get at what this sign is doing for us. Think about this young woman. Think about her. We don't know her name. We don't know who she is. We're told that, you know, she's an unmarried young woman. She's living through a time in her nation and a time of her history where even the most powerful people in her world, Ahaz, his governors, all of the people are shaking like leaves on trees. And what does this young woman do? Facing the doom of Assyria, she gets married, she has a baby, and she calls that baby, God is with us. What a phenomenal amount of faith. That in the midst of the brokenness of this world, in the midst of her insecurity, in the midst of of, of all of these forces that would make her feel so small, she says, you know what? I'm going to get married and I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to do the stuff that human beings are called to do in this world. I'm going to build a life for myself. I'm going to build a family. And I'm going to name it, God is with us. He's not with them. He's not out there. He's he's bigger than everything that's breathing down our necks. God is with us. It's an incredible act of faith to speak that word over your child when everyone around you is terrified, when even the king is terrified to say, I am going to be faithful to normal everyday life because God is with me. love this. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, when he was imprisoned by the Nazis, he was a Christian pastor imprisoned by the Nazis, uh, they would ultimately kill him. Right before getting arrested, he got engaged to a woman named Maria. We have a, a number of their letters back and forth. But in one of those letters, he writes to Maria as a, as a German prisoner of war, awaiting his likely death. He says this to Maria, When I also think about the situation of the world, the complete darkness over our personal fate and my my present imprisonment, then I believe that our union can only be a sign of God's grace and kindness, which calls us to faith. And I do not mean the faith which flees the world, but the one that endures the world and which loves and remains true to the world in spite of all of the suffering that the world contains for us. Listen to this. Our marriage will be a yes to God's earth. It will strengthen our courage to act and to accomplish something in this world. Something of that, I think, is what's going on in this young woman's life. In the midst of so much that rages against her, marriage, family, vocation, is a yes to creation, a yes to the earth, a yes to human uh, dignity and calling. That I'm going to trust in God, and then I'm going to go about my life. I'm going to love my husband. I'm going to love my child. I'm going to go about my calling. I'm going to go to work. 
I'm going to be a good neighbor. In the midst of all of this stuff, I'm going to say yes to all that I know God has called me to. And then the dazzling faith to name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel can either be uh, translated, God is with us, a statement, or God be with us, a prayer. And either way, it's a statement of faith. God, be with us. Don't leave us. If you're with us, there's no reason to shake or to flutter like the leaves. Be with us, our God who saves us. A God who's substantive that we can hold on to. And in this, she shows us this beautiful faith, trusting not in earthly saviors, but that in the one who would bring the Savior to bear in human life. And it's this that Matthew picks up on. When Matthew says that this is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, he's saying, look, that woman is a whole lot like this other woman, Mary, who while Herod raged and Caesar raged against God's people, while Herod sought out every little boy that was born at the same time in an attempt to kill God's Messiah, a virgin would be with child. And she, not anonymous to us like the other, but known to God and now known to history, would faithfully follow God, would believe him at his word, would get married, would bring this child into the world, not in a palace, but in a stable. And that he would come to be the savior of his people. A true king, not with a fluttering heart like Ahaz, but full of righteousness and love and goodness. That he would come to bring God's promise of Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, God in our lives as our rescuer and as our redeemer. He would take what this woman, this young woman in Isaiah's day took by faith that God, even though I can't see him, is with us and I know it and I believe it. And he would take it and he would put skin and bones on it to say, you can know that God is with you because I came and I was born And I did not let you go. I did not give up on you, even when it meant going to death on a cross. That I am God with you, even in the midst of human sin and suffering. And I, in my resurrection life, promise you, as I promise my disciples, that I'll never leave you or forsake you. That I am with you always, Emmanuel, to the very end of the age. And so you can know when life gets hard, when everything in you tempts you, to flutter like the leaves on the trees, to be just as anxious and just as fearful as the world around us so often is, that we can say with a deep breath, God is with us. God is with me. I am not alone. How do I know? I can look to the manger at Bethlehem. I can look to the cross at Golgotha. I can look to the empty tomb in Jerusalem and know that I know that I know that Jesus will not and has not and will never leave me alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we confess, I confess that so often I feel so all alone.
I wonder sometimes in my moments of doubt if you really are there with me. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring assurance to our souls by your Spirit to reassure us that you are and always will be our Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, you tell us that we are heading for an eternity in which there is no temple because you yourself will be our light. And so, Lord, you will be, your presence will fill all and be all in all for us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in this life, as full as it is of doubt and anxiety and dread and worry and fear, that you hold us and we can hold on to you. Emmanuel, God with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.